This episode is brought to you by Feel Free from BotanicTonics.com. Feel Free is a small two-ounce shot made from kava and other ancient plants, and the feeling that it provides is incredible. It is euphoric. It gives you this sense of focus. It reduces anxiety, and it just puts you in a relaxed state in your body. Think of it as a plant-based magical elixir that can uplift your mood, increase your productivity, and give you the energy to do the things you want to do today. There are so many applications for when you can use Feel Free. A few examples are using Feel Free to get into a flow state before yoga, meditation, or exercise. People are using this as a kind of energy drink to go running for miles at a time. And it's also great for socializing. It just makes it easier to connect to people around you. There isn't this kind of background hum of anxiety anymore. It just really melts away. And that also makes it a great replacement for alcohol. So if you're ready to feel free, go to botanictonics.com and use promo code ZIAN40 for 40% off. Again, that's botanictonics.com, promo code ZIAN40, X-I-A-N 40, at botanictonics.com. This episode is also brought to you by Sheath, the underwear of legends. What makes Sheath different is the pouch on the inside. Now this is a game-changing invention that completely revolutionizes the male undergarment. These are the most comfortable underwear I have ever worn by far. They've got amazing designs and styles, super comfortable fabrics. My favorite is the bamboo and also the V, which is a long leg athletic underwear that doesn't ride up and it supports you where it matters most. So go check out Sheath at sheathunderwear.com and use promo code TIMEWHEEL to save 20%. Once again, that's sheathunderwear.com, promo code TIMEWHEEL.
All right, we are rolling, and I'm here with my friend Buckley Rue. How's it going today, man? Not bad, not bad. It's a nice day out here in Houston, and uh, happy to be here recording this with you. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, we've been connected for quite a while in the kind of psychedelic space. Um, you're actually a writer uh, with a degree in religious studies from UT, as well as you've spoken at several conferences and been on several podcasts as well bringing these kind of really cool ideas forth, um, one of which is uh, revolution theory, and I'd love to get into that. But before we do, I usually start these things by just asking, you know, how did you find the spiritual path or, or psychedelics? How do they come into your life? Or how did you really get interested in this realm of work? You know, when did that begin? If you would just kind of tell me the story about the first kind of couple times you were getting these inklings of spirituality or something greater going on than, than typically we're used to knowing about or are privy to, to knowing about. Right. So, um, <clears throat> I, uh, I grew up Methodist and, uh, went to church and, you know, shit like that, you know, my whole life. Um, and so, you know, it had always been, you know, a, something present in my life. And, uh, you know, kind of growing up and going to church, especially being Methodist, uh, there's kind of just a really bland kind of idea of spirituality that's kind of like involved with Methodism. But mm -hmm. the questions that, you know, revolve around it have always been super interesting and really important to me. And um, whenever I was in my teens, I uh, started to get into people like Aldous Huxley and uh, his theory of, you know, the perennial philosophy. And, you know, he was a big writer about psychedelics. And so that kind of turned me on to, uh, you know, that whole uh, area of life. And, mm. um, like Terrence McKenna says, uh, psychedelics are kind of like where the rubber meets the road mm -hmm. in the concept of spirituality. And, you know, whereas, you know, most sorts of spiritual practices leave you wanting more, uh, psychedelics are <laughs> the only thing out there where you really kind of need to put the brakes on sometimes because it can sure. be overwhelming. And, you know, uh, for me, it's, uh, it's always been like a conversation of, oh, you don't believe in God? Well, then tell me about it after you've taken a vial of LSD or something mm -hmm. like that. Tell me about that after you've experienced 5-MeO-DMT. And in fact, a study out of Johns Hopkins found that among people who self-describe as atheist and had a uh, classically mystic experience through psychedelics, 70% of them uh, revise their beliefs from atheism to pantheism or theism of some kind. And while there is critiques that can be made about the methodology involved in that study, I did think it was still nonetheless a uh, interesting antidote to bring up. Uh, right. You know, uh, like Terrence McKenna says, uh, DMT shows us unequivocally that these realms of existence that we have debated the existence of for a thousand years absolutely exist. Mm -hmm. 
And so that was always kind of what led me down that road of it. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. Do you happen to remember how you heard of Aldous Huxley? Was it a friend that gave you a book or um, do you remember no, how you found that? Uh, it's It was just in a completely independent study of mine, uh, just being mm. a teenager, you know, I got interested in psychedelics and, uh, you know, Timothy Leary and people mm. like that. And, you know, um, Aldous Huxley wrote The Doors of Perception. And, yeah. so, you know, he was like the first great uh, psychedelic frontier guy. And mm. so it was just kind of something that I just kind of ran into on my own. And, you know, mm. uh, I read Brave New World, which is a thing in and of itself. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's always just kind of been my favorite uh, philosopher, writer, um, public intellectual guy. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, it's so interesting how we all come to similar places uh, through different means and different forms of media. It's kind of even weird to refer to books as a form of media, but in a way they are, you know, uh, the original Absolutely. the original media. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, um, but yeah, you know, I wasn't much of a reader. Uh, for myself, it was definitely films and things like YouTube that I was, oh, and music, actually music and the, the lyrics of musicians that was piquing my interest into like, what are they talking about? Um, I remember the first time I saw the Aldous Huxley quote, um, if you were to cleanse your lens of perception, you would see everything as it is, infinite. Mm-hmm. Um, something along those lines. I remember seeing that as a quote and being like, and that was after um, some of my initial psychedelic experiences and being like, oh yeah, like that's what I saw, you know? It's so funny how we walk around as humans thinking that we know what's going on. We're on top of it. We're on top of this life. And it really, like when you get in a psychedelic state, you're like, no one knows what's going on here. What are we? Who are we? Where are we? You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's funny. It's, uh, um, I mean, it's a very humbling experience. Right. It is, absolutely. So it sounds like it's led you down this rabbit hole of uh, philosophy and discovery, and you've given a number of talks uh, in the past. And I just kind of wanted to know what do these kind of, what are you trying to bring forth with, uh, these experiences under your belt? Like what, what are your talks about? Um, what are you trying to share and where is it being inspired from? Um, I guess, uh, more than anything, what I'm really trying to do, I don't know, it sounds kind of arrogant to kind of say out loud, but I'm just trying to kind of push humanity forward. Uh, I mean, we live in a, world with space age technology and sort of medieval uh philosophies and we are very uh dualistic in our day-to-day life and our framework and thinking oh this is bad but this is good Mm -hmm. and um i mean these notions are parasitic they're toxic and they are holding us back from all kind of understanding that you know we are one essentially you know the 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 capitalist and the socialists uh all essentially kind of want more or less the same things out of life except uh it's we have these elites who are kind of telling us uh no 
this is like that and this is like this. And whenever you actually sit down and have conversations with one another, we all kind of find that we more or less want the same things out of life. You know, it's mm-hmm. a, it's, it's actually funny. I, uh, I, uh, went to, uh, a, a, uh, a psychological health facility, uh, mm-hmm. years ago. And, uh, in that place, there was a Marine, a ex-police chief, Mm-hmm. A guy who studied at Harvard, a crip, a dude from the Mexican mafia, and a couple of more or less active and inactive members of the Aryan Brotherhood. And, mm-hmm. you know, whereas in our day to day lives, we would all be, you know, at each other's throats um, mm-hmm. when we all kind of sat down with one another and. Uh, you know, we're together for, you know, like just a month, not only were we being civil with one another, but we were like crying and holding each other and calling each other our brothers, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, uh, I I guess to answer your question, just trying to break down barriers and Mm -hmm. explore new ideas and create new ideas for that matter. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, in our pre-chat, we had talked a little bit about hermeticism. Um, how did you get interested in hermeticism and maybe what is hermeticism for people that aren't familiar with it? So, um, how, how I initially got into hermeticism was, uh, just during my, uh, stay at university of Texas, uh, I was studying Eastern philosophy, but I, I was really kind of looking for more of like a comparative study of religion, mm-hmm. but you had to kind of focus on one specific area. But in doing so, I just kind of, you know, stumbled across uh, hermetic philosophy and started to get really interested in it. And the more I got interested in it, the more I got interested in it. And <laughs> I mean, hermeticism has driven science for Mm. essentially the last 2,000 years. Uh, I mean, Leonardo da Vinci was a hermeticist. Michelangelo was a hermeticist. Isaac Newton was a hermeticist. Uh, Many of the uh, great uh, Islamic scientists were conversant in hermetic philosophy. Hermetic philosophy set off the Italian Renaissance, Um, Mm. but... To answer your question, what it's more or less about. So Hermeticism begins from the standpoint that by studying astrology, alchemy, and theurgy, one can uncover all the mysteries of the universe. And keep in mind that we're talking about an ancient philosophy here. So when we say astrology, we are talking about both astrology and astronomy. And when we are talking about alchemy, we are essentially talking about chemistry And when we talk about uh, theurgy, we are essentially talking about ritual magic. Uh, Hermeticism, from its very beginning, has always been both radically mystic and very pro-science. But uh, to get into what it's about, I could think of uh, no better way to describe what it's about than from this passage from the Corpus Hermeticum, which is the primary text of Hermeticism, 
that I love so much that I just thought I should memorize it and be able to bust it out for people. And it uh, goes like this. If then you do not make yourself equal to God, you cannot apprehend God, for like is only known by like. Leap clear of all that is corporeal, and make yourself to a like expanse with that greatness which is beyond all measure. Rise above time and become eternal. Then you can apprehend God. Believe that for you too nothing is impossible. Know that you too are immortal, and that you are able to grasp all things within your thought, to know every craft and every science. Find your home in the haunts of every living creature. Make yourself higher than the heights and lower than the depths. Bring together within yourself all opposites of quality, heat, cold, dryness, fluidity. Think that you are everywhere at once, on land, at sea. Think that you are not yet begotten, that you are young, that you are old that you have died, that you have gone to the world beyond the grave. Grasp all this in your mind at once, all times and places and qualities and magnitudes together. Then you can apprehend God. But if you shut up your soul and your body and abase yourself and say, I know nothing, I can do nothing, I am afraid of earth and sea, I cannot mount the heavens, I know not what I was, nor what I shall be, then what have you to do with God? And it uh, goes on from there. So Hermeticism sort of, if if you would say, reveres any god, it would be Hermes. And mm-hmm. Hermes has always been the uh, the intercessor between worlds, uh, mm-hmm. between the heavens and the earth. And um, the uh, primary figure in uh, Herm- Hermeticism is Hermes Trismegistus who is uh, hailed as this kind of great sage and scientist and writer. And so Hermeticism uh, was a creation of Alexandrian syncretism, essentially. Mm. Um, And Alexandria was the cradle of science and philosophy for... uh, hundreds of years and is that a place or a library right alexandria is in egypt it was uh conquered by alexander and it became this greek uh province at the edge of egypt Mm. and so uh hermeticism in its birth has always been this sort of synthesis of different ideas and uh Alexandria itself was the synthesis of different ideas, different races, different cultures. Alexandria represents the very birthplace of modernity. It was the very first sort of melting pot society that ever emerged in civilization. And in many ways, uh, Alexandria was uh, even more evolved than America was. And they, a uh, great work came out of Alexandria. I mean, the just to name one thing off the top of my head, uh, Eratosthenes uh, was one of the great uh, librarians at the Library of Alexandria. And uh, he calculated the circumference of the earth and was correct within 400 miles. Damn. And, yeah. That's uh, awesome. And 
I, I won't go into his methodology of how he how he did it because if I did, I would probably butcher it, and I, I want to do him better <laughs> than that. But yeah, sure, sure. Uh, and then yeah, the uh, Library of Alexandria was considered the uh, the greatest of the uh, ancient wonders of the world. They had supposedly mm -hmm. at their zenith something like four hundred thousand or five hundred thousand scrolls, and uh, it was created by uh, Ptolemy. Who was mm -hmm. who set up like the very last Egyptian dynasty after Alexander died? Ptolemy was uh, one of Alexander's generals and very close confidants, and so he ran off with Alexander's body and uh, founded Alexandria. After well, after Alexander had founded it, he went mm -hmm. to Alexander and made it what it was. Mm. So it sounds like it's this cultural melding, melting pot uh, between Greece and Egypt, which both had very kind of unique and powerful iconography when it comes to like the gods and the goddesses. You know, like Egypt has the sun god Ra and, you know, Anubis, the god of death. And then in uh, the Greek mythology, there's like Zeus and these type of people, right? So maybe this is where they're kind of merging. Is that right? Oh, yeah, very much so. Uh, and it's funny, uh, if you actually look at uh, statues that existed in Alexandria, they would have the Egyptian gods clothed like Greeks. And, uh, I mean, you could, it, it could not have been more of a synthesis of different cultures and ideas and totally. uh they in the uh agora which was kind of like the center of town in uh alexandria kind of like downtown would be today or something uh they had just tons of statues of the different mm -hmm. gods right there in the uh, middle of the uh city center and throughout the city there would be tons of uh uh, shrines and sanctuaries to the different gods uh, in the uh, Serapium, which was the uh, daughter library to the uh, Library of Alexandria, as well as the Library of Alexandria. It had tons of uh, shrines to the different gods uh, itself. So it was uh, mm -hmm. very much a melting of those two uh, cultures. Yeah. That's, it makes a lot of sense because I actually did not know that. And now that I remember back to the image of Hermes Trismegistus that I, that I do recall, I've seen the image of him or like the artistic depiction of him. And, and it is very much like Egyptian Greek. And I was like, what's going on here? Like, I, I didn't understand, but now I'm, I'm getting it more. Um, but mm -hmm. one question that pops up for me is, do you believe he was a real person or was he more of maybe a myth or like a god, like Zeus, you know, was Zeus a real person? I don't know. It seems to me that he's almost this higher being that, like, lives on Mount Olympus, the the mythical city of the gods, you know, like, whether or not he was actually a physical human versus, like, maybe an avatar or uh, a being that someone might encounter on psychedelics or in spiritual states, you know, who's to say? But do you think that Hermes was a real person? Um, it's hard for me to say. I, I kind of personally lean towards no. Um, whenever people would be writing uh, texts back then, um, they so there's tons of texts that are attributed to Hermes. Mm -hmm. and, but whenever people would write texts back then, they would usually 
go under the pseudonym of uh, a more famous person than them Mm -hmm. so that people would take their work seriously. And so um, there is these sort of uh, legendary accounts of uh, supposedly Apollonius of Tyana uh, stumbling upon uh, Hermes' tomb, uh, mm-hmm. but that's uh, it's kind of, it, it's it, it's very legendary, and everything that mm-hmm. we know about Apollonius, for for the most part, is kind of built around legends itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Hermes w- was considered to be like the same thing as Thoth in the Egyptian pantheon. Uh, mm-hmm. So Hermes Trismegistus means Hermes thrice great, and uh, supposedly he came first to civilization as Thoth, and then he came back uh, as Hermes, and then he came back as the figure Hermes Trismegistus. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I personally lean towards him not being in a historical figure, mm-hmm. but. Uh, it's not really important to me whether or not he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, maybe he's more of like that avatar. Like I was saying, like the people who wrote the, um, the yogic texts, you know, uh, even someone like Lao Tzu who created the Tao Te Ching is like, you know, was he, was Lao Tzu the only author of the Tao Te Ching? I mean, in theory, yes, but do we really know that? No, we don't, we don't really know. Obviously, these are people that have a great amount of understanding, uh, philosophical understanding, and the, the nature of consciousness, and the nature of reality, and these types of things. Um, and it does make sense that, you know, hey, if, if they want people to take it seriously, maybe they use a pen name, someone more famous. I kind of, I kind of understand how back then before, like everything was traceable the way it is now with the internet, you could kind of get away with that and say, Hey, Hermes wrote this, or I I stumbled upon a tomb and who can really verify whether or not that's true. You know, like back then stories held so much more weight. Uh, the legend, the legendary aspect of stories, the, the myth, the, the mythic part of stories, Versus like today, you know, it's like we can almost look it up and it's like, hey, if that guy didn't exist and there's no record of his birth and now we don't take it for, I mean, a lot of people will say like it's not scientific, quote unquote, but uh, oftentimes like these are, these are almost like works of poetry, you know, like Absolutely. maybe what Her- what Hermes is bringing, yeah, is, is, is poetry for us to get our mind thinking about these higher ideals um, which I, I really like that aspect. And it makes sense to me that, that you know, he, what you said, essentially, like, it doesn't really matter whether or not he was real. If the work's impacting you, that's all that matters. What would you say about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said, uh, whether or not he was a real being is rather un- inconsequential to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the, the ideas that are being put forth by whoever was writing these texts are all very consistent with one another and they all show a very uh, advanced level of understanding. And um, just to, you know, riff off the fact that people would create texts under different names, uh, they 
author of the Zohar, which is the uh, primary text of Kabbalah. Uh, his name was Moses de Leon, and he wrote the text under the name of uh, this very famous 4th century rabbi uh, who uh, was one of the great figures of Judaism. And when after the guy had died and the Zohar had come out, you know, people went out looking for the author of it. And so uh, they found his wife and they, she said, oh, no, he wrote it. Uh, my husband wrote it. And they said, well, why did he say uh, that this other guy wrote it? So, well, mm -hmm. because nobody would take him seriously if, if he didn't. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, no, uh, yeah, like I said, it, to me it's rather inconsequential as to whether right. or not uh, Hermes was a historical figure or not. Right. It's almost an act of, like, scrambling, like, with the idea of scrambling data, you know, is it's like by distorting who people believe the author is, they'll now allow the truth to of it to enter their mind, you know? Um, that's interesting. And it, it, for some reason, and I don't know this story super in depth, but it reminds me a little bit of the Mormon tale where this guy, like, stumbles upon... Um, tome like these not tome but but like these like golden this golden tablets. book yeah. yeah golden tablets that's right golden tablets with like it's etched from god you know he's like i found them but now no one knows where they are i'm the only one that knows you know it's almost like he's he's scrambled the data enough that it's i mean clearly it worked look how many mormons exist right you know right I, I don't really follow that, but it's interesting. You know, I do believe in several tenets from many religions. I just, I don't follow any one particular religion. But it's, it's an interesting concept for sure about how we, I mean, everything essentially is that. Like, we really don't have proof about people who lived. I mean, maybe there's some proof. I, I don't know. I'm not really like uh, oh, sure. a, I mean, the, a historian, uh, but. <laughs> the uh, I mean, the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like, we know uh, one hundred percent that those were not eyewitness accounts uh, mm -hmm. written by the actual Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were written probably at least you know fifty years or so after they had died. I mean, we're right. talking about illiterate fishermen. Totally, yeah, that's interesting, and and yet we've taken it all as the truth. You know, like so many of the people in these religions, uh, it's it's like they don't even question it. You know, it's so much like, but that's what's interesting about psychedelics is we begin questioning everything in a sense. Uh, we really open our mind to possibility, but more or less, I think that there's some signature of truth that we tap into when we feel it, when we hear it. That's why I'm so drawn to the Tao Te Ching is like when I read it um, or listen to it in an audiobook form, it just hits me right in the center. It just like, this sounds like truth. Like, I can't say it any better than this. This is almost what I've been thinking all along and just not been able to uh, create verbally, but what someone has in the past. And that's a profound thing. Um, it's a profound thing that, that we're able to do. And where all of our kind of knowledge comes from is these, you know, people that are in touch with the truth. Um, do you think that they were using psychedelics to create these texts? Um, probably not. Uh, 
maybe well okay it, yes to some degree absolutely uh i mean the uh the, like the blue lotus in the Egyptian culture, uh, like we know that that was taken for entheogenic purposes. Um, the there are theories about uh, uh, ancient use of psychedelics, like the Eleusinian mysteries, uh, mm-hmm. are kind of uh, built around the idea that. Uh, I mean, the Eleusinian mysteries were considered like the great triumph of Greek culture and thought. And mm-hmm. the, the main sort of theory about what was going on with that is that they were taking this drink called the Kaikion, which mm-hmm. uh, supposedly had an uh, analog of LSD in it. Um, so, yeah, there was definitely a, a, a degree of people using psychedelics in the ancient world. Um, mm-hmm. But I also think that people were using techniques to also undergo uh, altered states of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, like one of the things you see with uh, the Jews quite a bit is uh, they, uh, they rock back and forth whenever they do their prayers. Yep. And, uh, you know, that's supposed to kind of help put you closer to God and things like that. Uh, like the, uh, I think, the Islamic sorts of uh, something like the 10,000 names of God, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they would recite that and, uh, you know, try to go into these altered states. So, right. uh, yes, I do think that there was some degree of people using psychedelics in the ancient world, but I don't think that their access to altered consciousness was limited to psychedelics and Mm. in fact would probably be more likely that they were uh using techniques uh Mm. to interstates of mysticism that makes sense yeah for sure it's interesting how i found myself um doing that rocking motion as well like uh like you said the the mystic mystical kind of uh jewish community kind of taps into and in my mind, uh, it's linked to Kundalini energy. Mm-hmm. Um, you familiar with Kundalini? I am. Yeah, yeah. I've so actually kind of, had a Kundalini awakening um, years ago. I would love yeah. to hear about that, but 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 quickly, I'll finish my point of that. There's this kind of like mystical energy uh, that exists at the base of the spine that, as we unlock to it or allow it to move through the body certainly rocking type motions um begin happening even toward uh even twisting and twirling type motions some people go into spontaneous kind of ecstatic yoga poses as well when that energy is is moving and it's really just like the creative force it's hard to know really put a word on it but once you've experienced it you know what it is um, oh absolutely you know, but um, quickly, I, I know I want to get back to your work and, and stuff that you're writing about. But but what was this Kundalini awakening experience that you that you had? Uh, okay, so uh, I was at a music festival and uh, I had taken a dose of four ACO DMT, which okay. I've always had rather profound experiences with. But that's beside the point. Um, so there was <laughs> this uh, film being showed there called uh, the Template. Uh, ceremony of original innocence 
and mm-hmm. it's like this uh, they market it as this like alchemical ceremony it, it's supposed to unlock the 12 circuits of dna and once they're unlocked keep them open and so it's like this series of prayers that uh they're like doing while they show uh sacred geometry and like music that's supposed to like cleanse the chakras but Mm -hmm. like as i'm watching this like it was just the most beautiful work of art like i had ever seen and i'm just Mm -hmm. sitting there just like openly just weeping and i it ends and i'm like i'm sitting there thinking about just how grateful i am to be alive and everything and i had this thought of take this feeling that you have right now and focus on it and let it grow Mm -hmm. and so i started doing that and all of a sudden like my body just lights up Mm -hmm. uh like i had kind of experienced kundalini awakenings before of like the ball of energy going up the spine and out the top Mm -hmm. of the head but this was like somebody just turned on the floodgates and i at first i was like focusing on it and just riding this wave just upward and upward and i got to the point where i was like if i don't bring myself back down from this i might not come back down from it and Mm -hmm. so i i eventually kind of like let it go and subside and i was like okay that was weird and uh so i'm sitting there and it happens again and Mm. i this the second time i had absolutely no control of it and i i was just like on the ground screaming uh Mm. because this was just it's very pleasurable but it's very painful too i mean you feel like you're on fire Mm. and so eventually it go it goes away and people are running up to me like are you okay what's going on and i'm like I have never been better (laughs) (laughs) despite the fact I'm on the ground screaming. Mm -hmm. And uh, so after that happened, I knew it was going to happen one more time. Mm -hmm. And so sure enough, I'm sitting there a couple of minutes later, it comes back and this third time was the strongest. And again, I had no control over this. Mm -hmm. It was uh, very intense, but Mm -hmm. yeah, it came and went and that was, uh, uh, the second major mystical experience I've had in my life. Wow. What uh, that, uh, you said it was for ACO DMT? Yes. Is that taken orally? Yes. Okay. Uh, so it has a longer duration then. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it lasts something like, uh, four to eight hours. Got it. Um, okay. And it's, it's supposed to be like a synthetic mushroom trip, but I've, found it to be completely different than mushrooms personally totally wow yeah that's powerful and and i believe that you know compounds like that have been around and and been creating kundalini awakening for a long time um i do believe it's possible without the psychedelics as well but um for most people they're gonna need a hand if they want to experience that but also i'll say this isn't something for everyone i think it takes a particular person with a particular set and setting and set of interests even to to be able to have that experience and be able to come back from it and not see negative kind of side effects from it you know um let it be more of an awakening and an opening and an uplifting and, and something to spur your curiosity 
versus like to be afraid of, um, which I think is very easy to be afraid of experiences like this that, that are mm-hmm. of this intense nature, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't recommend it for everybody now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I try to e- echo that in, in most of my podcasts cause I love to talk about these things, but I also just know like this is, we're kind of playing with fire a little bit on the edge of sanity, but mm-hmm. you know, we, it, it's good. It, I mean, for a particular type of person on a spiritual path, trying to really understand like where they are and in in that where their karma is and and what they're here to to do to to maybe uh, lived in, in the deepest way they can, you know, these experiences certainly shed some light um, into that. But that was an awesome little tangent. But but I'll come back to your to your work writing. Um, when did you begin writing? When was that something that you knew you wanted it to do? Uh, when I was in college, uh, I, I, I knew I wanted to write a novel, uh, that was going to be like, I wanted the whole kind of idea of it to be like fear and loathing in Las Vegas meets high school. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I wrote my novel afterlife, which is, uh, kind of, I mean, that's kind of the, the gist of it, but it's, it's more so based around a nightclub that used to exist in Dallas, uh, called afterlife and um it's about this kid who is uh having a schizophrenic break after a traumatic experience that happens to him but he doesn't know he's having a schizophrenic break and uh so he goes to this club and he has this sort of mystical experience and becomes obsessed with discovering the biblical fruit of knowledge Mm -hmm. and um so uh it's about the psychedelic odyssey of this schizophrenic right. kid who is um, trying to figure out what the biblical fruit of knowledge is while he uh, goes to school and uh, goes to these nightclubs on the weekend. So you um, wrote a book about that? Yeah, my, that, that was my first novel, Afterlife. It's it's out right now. Nice. It's interesting how um, schizophrenia itself can be a gift in a, in a way when it's harnessed, but also a curse to people who seem to be ill-affected by it. But not everyone is, you know. I've done a little bit of research into it and, and just heard almost trip reports, you know, so to speak, of people that have um, these experiences. And some of them is a very nice, kind of cuddly, curious energy that they have. Um, and other people was telling the very like paranoid type of thoughts, um, very like disabilitating or debilitating thoughts. What, what are, what's your understanding of schizophrenia and what might be going on there? Uh, schizophrenia, as I understand it for the most part, is very debilitating and not enjoyable. But that's kind of more so because of the culture that we have which surrounds it and how we deal with mental health and deal with schizophrenics. Um, you know, in the past, uh, the schizoids were kind of considered the shaman. Uh, I mean, these schizoids right. were the shaman essentially. Um, yeah. uh, Terrence McKenna, uh, noted a similarity between, uh, schizophrenics and, um, the, the shamanic figures right. and uh somebody else did as well I, i'm blanking on who it was um uh, maybe mm-hmm. mercia eliad but don't quote me on that mm-hmm. um but uh yeah uh, for the most part i would 
not categorize schizophrenia as being good and pleasant, but uh, mm-hmm. as uh, Joseph Campbell says, uh, you know, the mystic swims in the same water where the psych- psycho drowns. Yeah. And so if you are able to uh, navigate those states in a healthy way, then uh, mm-hmm. it can completely, you know, transform your life and your understanding of it. Um, that for the uh, people in like uh, Siberia, uh, if they were having like a schizophrenic break and they did not try to be uh, to shamanize it, uh, mm-hmm. then they were essentially uh, just relegated to the psycho wards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, part of me that's that's saying how it could be harnessed, uh, w- the image that comes up in my mind is like Carl Jung in the Red Book. Mm-hmm. You know, because oh, it's like, that seems like schizophrenia, but well harnessed, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, you're having visions and dreams and symbols and poems and art and all this stuff flooding into his consciousness and and i don't i'm not extremely familiar with his story i've, I've certainly heard a, a bit about it but it seemed like uh, he even admitted to almost like yo i was on the edge of sanity mm-hmm. when the red book happened but mm-hmm. look what the red book has provided to psychology and to psychiatry and to the artistic field a lot right so that's kind of like maybe what I mean to say when it's like, if it's harnessed and maybe into an artistic expression of some type of channeling, um, perhaps it can not be so debilitating. Yeah. Um, Jung developed the uh, phrase of the wounded healer, which has uh, basically been used to describe uh, the shamanic sorts of figures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, to me, in a sense, if you were to take a shaman, like an ayahuasca shaman, even from today, let alone 100 years ago, even from today, and plop them in the the middle of America with a translator, and they're there saying, the trees are speaking to me, we would be like, he's not okay, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, the majority of people would be like, this is schizophrenia, like, we know what this is, and let's label that um let's get him some help because like he's over here talking about the trees are talking to him you know us with psychedelic states under our belt we know the trees do talk to you (laughs) yeah um in the sort of public intellectual world you know there's a big debate over whether or not um psychedelics do actually provide any sort of meaningful insight into the world and whether or not it can be proven that they do. And um, Carrie Mullis actually discovered a polymerose chain reaction, uh, PCR, under uh, the influence of LSD while he was driving his car one night. I wouldn't suggest mm-hmm. that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, and he 100% attributes his study or his discovery of uh, PCR to having taken LSD. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big topic. That's a big topic. But um, to get to the topic uh, of revolutionary theory before we kind of run out of time, 
I know that's something that you're big on. And isn't that what you gave the talk at Astronics about? Yes, that was what my talk at Astronauts was about, yeah. Yeah, Astronauts. Um, yeah, I would yeah, love I to call kind of dive into too. it. It's funny. I go back and forth. I don't know. I don't know what yeah. to call it, but I love yeah. it. I love whatever it is. <laughs> but but yes, tell me uh, how you got interested in revolutionary theory, and and maybe give us a little sample of of the talk and and what the, the broad strokes of it. You know. Okay. Well, um, I mean, just to begin, uh, we absolutely need to have a revolution, not only here in America, but across the entire world. Um, we are running ourselves off the face of the earth. Um, we know we are doing this, yet we continue to pr progress in the same manner. Uh, our, the people who control our lives do nothing but try to divide us. Um, we have more empty homes in America then we have homeless people. We throw away so much food uh, that could be given to people, but we just don't give it to them because we can't mo make money off of it. Uh, mm -hmm. Culture is stagnating, and something like 40% 40 40 of all of the wealth on Earth is owned by a couple of thousand people. Um, mm -hmm. Capitalism is not working, and we need to develop a new mode of ideology to confront the fact that capitalism is not working mm -hmm. and uh, try to save humanity because at the rate we're going, there is not going to be much of a humanity left mm -hmm. and so uh i've been trying to just sort of develop this theory to sort of uh answer the call for that mm -hmm. and so essentially um what it boils down to is i make the claim that we need to have a neo-hermetic revolution to overthrow the forces of global capital. And mm. I make the claim that it needs to be neo-hermetic, not because I want to create a society of hermetic sages, but, mm. but for a few reasons. Um, mm -hmm. The first being that uh, when we refer to uh, like a hermetically sealed jar, we are referring to a jar that is completely sealed. So when we refer to hermeticism, we are talking about a philosophy that is complete, the one that tries to synthesize all aspects of life mm -hmm. and philosophy. Um, second, because in the left, there is an epidemic of infighting and people who think like they know more about what needs to happen than the next guy. And we are completely unable to organize and get together to create any meaningful change because there's just so much bickering going on uh, in all the various camps. And hermeticism is the very spirit of solidarity. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, uh, it was a 
synthesis of ideas and people. Um, and also for the reason that you can uh, sum up the entire hermetic cosmology in the phrase, as above, so below. Uh, mm-hmm. As above, so below is meant to denote how the microcosm and the macrocosm are essentially equal. Yeah. And so um, I say we need to move forward in the spirit of revolution in the realization of the above and below. But what are we trying to realize when, um, when I refer to the above and below? And that is the idea of the monomyth. Um, so the monomyth, or the uh, hero's journey, is this idea from Joseph Campbell that holds that you can basically trace all of myth to this uh, one basic process which unfolds over and over mm-hmm. again. And, uh, you know, some people have disagreements over whether or not you can break down all of myth into a basic formula. And of course you can't. Myth has been written for a variety of reasons over thousands of years. But we do know that all of Abrahamic religion conforms to the monomyth. Buddhist religion conforms to the Mm -hmm. monomyth. Vedic religion conforms to the monomyth. And the monomyth has to do with this idea of the development of the individual psyche. It is this process of apotheosis and of essentially becoming God. And my theory holds that not only does the individual have to go through this process, but society itself has to go Mm -hmm. through this process. It is an idea of social apotheosis and of overcoming opposites both politically and spiritually. And this idea of social apotheosis becoming God, not only on the individual, but on the social level as well, is what the entire theory really hinges on. And in order to make the case for this idea, I draw from many different elements, but Mm -hmm. uh, from elements as disparate as uh, biblical interpretation and Marxist ideology. Whenever you read the Bible, you have this idea of the Jews trying to escape persecution from Egypt and go towards the promised land, this idea of the liberation mm-hmm. of an entire culture and class of people from persecution. Mm-hmm. And whenever you uh, study these things, you can go back to the first century and find uh, Philo mm-hmm. of Alexandria, mm-hmm. speaking of Alexandria again, talking about how the Mm -hmm. Torah was Mm -hmm. supposed to be this document trying to discuss the liberation of Mm -hmm. the individual as well as the liberation of the Jews. He, He believed the Torah to be describing the journey of the individual soul. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about Marxist ideology, 
one of the things that Marx is primarily known for mm. is his theory of the march of history. This idea that society began in a primitive state of communism mm -hmm. and will eventually end in a more advanced and realized state of communism. And throughout history, on the journey to that, uh, society takes right. uh, many different expressions and forms and developments which have their sort of parallels with Campbell's theory of the uh, hero's journey. Marx believed that capitalism will at one point get to a point at which the contradictions of it become so numerous and apparent that it will eventually fall in on itself and society will eventually start to advance towards a state of socialism. Socialism is the point of apotheosis between communism and capitalism. It is the in-between point between the two ideas. It is the intermixing of capitalism and communism. And people tend to get all icky whenever you talk about socialism because they have a very preconceived idea of what socialism is and what socialism means. And that is because what we believe socialism is about has been forced on us through decades of propaganda by uh, capitalist uh, media sources. Socialism has nothing to do with any kind of notion of giving up your freedoms or anything like that. All socialism means is the democratization of the economic sphere. That's all it means. Democracy and socialism very much share the same definition. And whenever we talk about socialism, we aren't getting to any kind of notion of abandoning uh, liberty or anything like that. Socialism itself has nothing to do with the abandoning of liberty. In fact, capitalism has more to do with the abandonment of liberty because things that are only legal, illegal for the poor become basically legal for the rich and you can escape any crime, no matter how bad it is, if you have enough money under capitalism. And we see that evident today. And not only that, but we see it evident that the corporations very much control our democratic process in America. So whenever we talk about wanting to create a new theory of revolution and of revolutionary theory, we want to try to create a theory which can embrace all ideas of political and spiritual development, acknowledging that different things can be true at different times. So whenever we talk about revolutionary theory, we tend to be talking about ideas of Karl Marx or communism or some theory of anarchism. But even Karl Marx himself acknowledged that 
capitalism was a necessary development of human production and human development. And it very much was, but just because it was a necessary point of human production and development doesn't mean that we should be living under this state of development forever. Different things can be true at different times. You know, I'm very much an anarchist at heart, but even I can acknowledge that anarchism is not a viable solution at this point whenever we are talking about ideas of, you know, the pollution of the ocean and of climate change. We very much need a global effort at addressing these problems. And whenever we talk about a new theory of revolution, what we are talking about is one in which the entire planet becomes subsumed in this revolutionary effort. We are not talking about uh, an idea which maintains class distinctions and an idea which maintains the classical enemies uh, between countries. What we need from a new theory of revolution is one which unifies the entire planet, one which creates a new world order, not in the conspiracy theory sense of a corporatocracy which is uh, using globalism to take over the world, that idea is already present in our everyday lives. A, a new and true new world order is one in which the entire globe has become unified and has begun to overthrow the corporatocracy and the aristocracy which governs our lives on an everyday basis. And so, my entire theory hinges on this idea of social apotheosis, this idea of uh, planetary cohesion and the entire world becoming one, and using ideas such as Marxism and biblical interpretation. I'm trying to make the point that whether you are atheist or theist, whether you are right or left, this idea is apparent and has been apparent throughout the entire 2,000 years of uh, civilization. And in making the case for this idea, I don't just stop at biblical interpretation of Marxist ideology and the monomyth, but I also pull in ideas from psychedelic theory uh, ideas from dialectics, a little bit of postmodernism. I mean, even Gilles Deleuze, even going as far left in philosophy as Gilles Deleuze, Deleuze believed that all of life was the expression of this one basic process. He was a monist, but unlike Spinoza, who believed that life was the expression of one basic substance, he believed that life was the basic expression of this one continuous process. And this idea is an adaptation of that. So again, whether you're right or left, whether you are theist or atheist, this theory is apparent and it is evident from the 2,000 plus years of human civilization. And I know I went in a few different directions on that explanation, but you asked for it in a nutshell and in a broad sweep. 
And that is it in a nutshell and broad sweep. Yep. Um, great. So what that brings up for me, first of all, I love the concept as above, so below. The microcosm affects the macrocosm. The way I typically kind of envision that and how it's relevant to my life is as I meditate, I have a daily meditation practice. As I meditate and as I practice yoga, um, the act of kind of maybe we call it, you know, purifying the subtle body, um, we're kind of clearing space in the higher realm as well. Um, because as above, so below, um, you're maybe almost, yeah, affecting way, like uh, affecting the world in a peaceful way by bringing peace to the self. Um, when I hear revolution, the thoughts that come up are of fire and police and guns in the street and these type of things. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. Now, can would a neo-hermetic revolution be a peaceful one? I'm curious. Uh, this is the big subject, honestly, when we talk about revolution. Mm -hmm. Because when we do talk about revolution, we are tending to talk about, you know, violence. And the fact is, is that whether you're violent or not, your enemy, the forces of global capital, are going to paint you as being violent. They are, you can go back to the 1960s and find political cartoons where they were painting Martin Luther King out to be uh, uh, just making violence in the streets while he calls it like a peaceful uh, a peaceful gathering. Um, mm. So uh, when I talk about overcoming of opposites, essentially, yes. I mean, there, there, there is going to have to be some level of violence. I mean, there is the, the police are going to shoot you whether you're being violent or not. But mm -hmm. just because it has to be one particular way does not mean that has to be the priority. It, it ha the priority has to be peace insofar as peace is possible. And there right. are ways around, uh, around violence. But whenever violence is being acted on you, you can't just allow yourself to, to be killed in the street because right. who's going to be there to push, to push, um, push these ideas forward you know the mm -hmm. fact is is that the forces that be want nonviolence because then they know they don't have to do anything mm -hmm. uh when occupy was happening uh, i i remember very distinctly thousands of people in the streets uh in front of wall street and right above them there was a guy on a balcony drinking champagne as he looked down on all of the plebs uh, mm -hmm. getting uppity. And mm -hmm. so the, I, the fact is, is that the time for civility is over. Mm -hmm. the, the world that exists now is one 
which does not deserve to exist. If you do not live in a world that is worth dying for, then that world does not deserve to exist. Mm -hmm. The world that we have now exists only for, as a matter of convenience in order for the elites to capitalize off of our labor. It exists only for the obligation to work. And the fact is, is that automation is coming to take all of our jobs. And that is a good thing. Mm -hmm. We do not need to have these lives in which we have to work 40 hours a week and still can't afford to survive. Mm -hmm. It's completely absurd. And saying please isn't exactly getting the point across. I mean, they've done studies that found that Congress literally does not care what you think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, to some degree, yes, violence is inevitable. Violence is uh, a fact of the matter. And when I talk about the overcoming of opposites, that is part of it. I mean, we as people in the modern world like to pretend that we're civilized and we're not violent. But, mm -hmm. you know, COVID hits and there's a small scarcity of toilet paper and people are punching right. out old women, you know. Yep. Um, so it's, it's an uncomfortable thing to confront, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, you know... It is what it is. I mean, the, <clears throat> have you ever the, seen the the movie uh, or the show uh, Robot? I what's it called? I Robot. I Robot. No, no, no. Okay, hold on a sec. Robot show, Mister Robot. Oh, uh, I've seen a little bit of it. Yeah. So it's very Fight Clubby. Um, in that the way that they're trying to uh, create revolution is almost through hacking mm -hmm. and through resetting the financial system, essentially erasing everyone's credit or debt or the history of what people owe where, right? So it's like if they're paying on their house and they have like 200K left on the house, the hacker is going to delete that, you know? Um, in my mind, that's not necessarily violence. Of course, it is resetting the system Maybe you could see it as computer violence or something like that. But I certainly understand what you're saying is like, look, just sitting back and being quiet isn't going to do it. But rather than gunfights in the street, could there be a way where we're, we're still getting the message across, but we're not having to hurt anyone physically? You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Um, the, the whole idea, you know, is work smarter, not harder. Um, mm -hmm. And very much the you know the revolution the a revolution that we want is a revolution that is brought forth through education uh, mm -hmm. and inevitability rather than you know mm -hmm. forcing something to happen but there is both of these things are going to be present uh, there's there's a saying that goes something like before the revolution everybody talked about, the revolution as being impossible and then after the revolution everybody talked about it as being inevitable and so mm -hmm. there is definitely an ebb and flow of all of these things being true at once and definitely we want to work smarter not harder 
Um, right. you, you know, the world that we live in right now, uh, you know, there's something like, I don't, it, is there even any millennials outside of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in Congress? Uh, I think, okay, I do think there is uh, like Dan Crenshaw and maybe one or two other people, but mm-hmm. you know, the, our demographic is completely unrepresented in the American system. And right. you know, while that's how I will, typically think about what's going to change is it's literally a matter of time. And maybe mm-hmm. this is a lazy way out. Maybe it's a lazy way out to think this way, but eventually everyone is going to die. And that means the people in power, right? That means right. their children are now moving up and they maybe have seen the psychedelic renaissance, maybe been impacted by it, maybe learned some meditation. And now 20 years from now, those dudes are, you know, unless they've got something else cooking, which they probably do. But I'm just thinking it, the best case scenario, like whoever moves into their position is a little more conscious than they were. Right, but there is always going to be somebody willing to pick up the reins to maintain the status quo, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I like I said, I, I, I do think there is, a, there is a definite ebb and flow of impossibility and inevitability, you know, mm-hmm. happening at the same time. But it is something that we have to take responsibility for and make happen mm-hmm. to some degree. If we're not having these conversations, they're never going to happen, mm-hmm. you know. And so, right. you know, it. This is where it all starts. And mm-hmm. uh, the fact is, is that we do need a new theory of revolution because the ones that we have have are doing nothing today but create division. And that is the very antithesis of revolution. And part of why I even say we need to have a neo-hermetic revolution is that hermeticism calls forth the highest ideals of man. Um, mm-hmm. In, in uh, you know, secular philosophy, secular philosophy has its place and is very important. And, I mean, let's be real you know, 90% of the smartest people on earth are very secular and uh, have no, want nothing to do with uh, spirituality and philosophy. But when it comes to conversations of transcendence and taking us beyond ourselves, uh, they have nothing to say. Um, they're, they're, they just like to pretend like transcendence is not even a thing. And it's or it's not possible, and the idea of taking you beyond yourself is uh, not really possible. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, hermeticism and you know things like psychedelic states do answer that question and say yes, it is possible. And right. um, once it's possible, and you know it's possible then what does that mean for you and how are you going to live your life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are big questions, you know, and definitely appreciate you bringing them up. Um, yeah, I'm wondering, you know, how, how could one organize, though? This is the part about humans. Everyone thinks they're right, you know? Right. And that's uh-huh. a tough thing to to get people behind a particular message 
because they people are going to have doubts about even even if they like the ideal they just they're just like the world can't really change they just have this kind of like everything's going to be how it is they don't really see how the transformation can occur even people that would love for it to occur they almost can't believe it including me a little bit you know it's oh, yeah. like i would love for a more peaceful no there's you a, know, society there's but. a famous quote that goes uh it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Right. Yeah, that's very true. And that's among those people. And that's why it's uh, a little bit daunting to conceive of uh, how, how could we unify so many people? You know what I mean? Um, I I feel like it's going to have to be thought leaders, uh, people with massive followings kind of, coming together maybe and creating that platform and spreading it uh through the social uh influencer aspect you know um Mm -hmm. i could spout off a bunch of names but you know let's just say like people with big podcasts or people like uh big psychologists or doctors or writers if everyone could kind of get on the same page and start to kind of share this philosophy more people would be interested and slowly but surely the numbers would rise what do you think about that oh 100 percent. i mean i feel uh i feel kind of bad sometimes that i like turned my back on uh being a uh a guy who runs like a meme page and stuff like that. Uh, my, you know, my page psychedelic spirituality, it had a following of about 500,000 people. And, you know, we kind of stopped, uh, mm-hmm. uh, organizing with that just partly because, um, the nature of the endeavor that we're taking on. I mean, you look at something like TikTok, and mm-hmm. you've got people who have built, these big followings by through the skin of their teeth and then they get banned one day over some innocuous reason and right. um meanwhile there's other people just out there just spreading pure hatred and mm-hmm. you know they don't get touched and right. so uh, it, i yeah no i definitely feel bad on some level having you know, turned my back on the whole kind of influencer sort of, uh, lifestyle for lack of a better word. But, uh, on, on another level, I've always kind of felt that that stuff is rather, um, masturbatory and self-indulgent. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the time the people who want to be the influencers the most have the least to say. And so I, uh, I, I, get, I can relate to that in a lot of cases. And as well, getting all the followers in the world doesn't even make you happy like you think it will. I can mm-hmm. say that firsthand, you know, like for me, it would, the number just kept going up. It's like I didn't ever think it's possible that we would get 20,000 followers. We got 20, so I pushed it to 40, so I pushed it to 60, so I pushed it to 100, and I still wasn't happy, right? So it's just like... You never really, you're not going to get to a number of, of people you're reaching and finally your life's going to change and everything's going to be great from here out. Every day mm-hmm. is a struggle, you know, it's humanity, you know, it, 
of course, there are things we can do to reduce the struggle. And I'm a big proponent of things like meditation and yoga, ice baths, sauna, wellness, diet, all these things help the struggle for sure. And everyone should strive to introduce those things to your life or maintain your wellness with them. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, but, but I am saying though, it certainly will take a awareness bomb of some sort where millions and millions of people are hearing this message for it to have a chance to uh, extend and, and create that social impact for sure. And that's just the first thing that comes to my mind as to how a neo-hermetic revolution might begin to emerge is, is, is with these influencers or these podcasters or people who, you know, have a lot of sway in the social sphere, but it's tricky. It's tricky though, because people's short attention spans, man, like they can hear this and be, I'm on board with it. And then a month later they forgot and they're eating McDonald's again. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely more challenging without having uh, a platform uh, to sort of do all these things from, um, but, uh, that, I mean, that's partly why I became a writer in the first place, uh, to, uh, put forth these ideas in the form of stories that people Mm -hmm. can, you know, be entertained by, but still be moved by on the emotional level, on the psychological level. Um, speaking of which, I got my novel, the Titan coming out sometime this year. Uh, awesome. Speaking of Alexandria, uh, my, my second novel, uh, the Titan is about, uh, a kid who is living uh, in Alexandria who accidentally falls into the Alexandrian intelligentsia and becomes tutored by this famous, uh, woman named Hypatia who was killed by the, uh, uh, by the Bishop of Alexandria over a political mm-hmm. dispute between uh, him and the prefect. Uh, so mm-hmm. it goes a lot into the events surrounding her death and this kid becoming initiated into hermeticism uh, to plug my book for a Love second. Love it. Yeah. No, I think that actually that's great. I'm, I look forward to that. Congrats that you're going to be releasing that. Um, it does lead me in the direction that I actually wanted to go, which is almost how art can change the minds and the hearts of society, almost more so than policy. You know, like, yeah, we've, when we've seen revolutions, like, uh, what we saw in the sixties and the seventies, and even today with psychedelic, the psychedelic Renaissance, so much of it is being pushed by the music, the art, the books, the films. So I'm very much of the camp of let's work on the art and create something that's so inspiring that that it changes the minds of people. They want to share it because of how powerful it is. And not only that, we introduce the idea to the psyche of humanity, like The Matrix, right? The Matrix, the movie is a meme in everyone's psyche now. Not everyone, but a vast Mm -hmm. majority of us. Now we know what the matrix is when people say it. Before Mm -hmm. that, you're thinking like, are we in mathematics class? Matrix, what are you talking about? You know, like, Mm -hmm. that's what I used to think of as matrix before the the film, the matrix. And now it created that uh, 
shockwave into the psyche of, of humans that when you say matrix, now they know what you're talking about. They know that we're in a system um, and there's a larger thing at play here. I think that the art, the writing, the films, the books, everything I mentioned there is maybe the best way, the best angle to take a revolution, you know, by, by portraying it that way. What would you say about that? Oh, a hundred percent. Um, the, uh, I mean, the, the Soviets were very, uh, involved in the artistic world and, uh, through much of the 20th century, uh, the artistic world was dominated by communists, uh, and uh, they took the revolution to art. Um, and I mean, the Bible and uh, the Quran and you know every other mm -hmm. holy text. I mean, it is a work of art. Uh, right. I mean, and that is what civilizations have been built around. Uh, mm -hmm. but I also do think there is, we are at a point now where art has almost kind of lost its ability to impact people like it used to. Um, there's a, a quote from the famous, uh, philosopher Jean Baudrillard that says, uh, the death of art will not come through a lack of it, but through an overabundance of it. And, mm. Uh, I mean, you look at art from people like Alex Gray and mm -hmm. uh, Android Jones. I mean, you're not going to find <laughs> more impactful art than that. <laughs> and, you know, I say, I say uh, you know, what do you think of Alex Gray to the average guy? And they're going to say, who the fuck is that? Act sure. uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, we uh, art. Mm -hmm. definitely has a, a vital role to play in revolution. But it, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you ask them, you know, what is it you're expressing when, mm -hmm. when it comes to a work of art, you know, and, you know, we, what's the answer going to be, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and there are definitely... I mean, the work of Alex Gray and people like that definitely has transformative power to it. Mm -hmm. And um, there, there is music and film out there which does have transformative power. I mean, these the visionary communities that uh, we run in uh, mm -hmm. are geared towards trying to transform society and uh right. that's partly why i'm so passionate about them and running them right for sure yeah well i feel like the answer that's coming up for me is like trying to create revolution in little pockets and it's more or less our own personal life the lives of the people closest to us and maybe the festival culture or other select gatherings. And if we can kind of like pollinate slowly but surely, we'll get closer, you know, we'll get closer to a more ideal society. Yes, um, but I will say that because we have centered ourselves on that approach, we have lost the greater narrative 
of mm. how of impacting you know the totality and the rest of the world because mm-hmm. with in many sorts of uh you know anarchistic and revolutionary sorts of uh groups they are mm-hmm. geared towards you know just trying to uh change this one little pocket for some people mm-hmm. whereas you can only do that only so much when the rest of the world is just uh stepping on your throat you know mm-hmm. and uh we do need to make more of a uh a movement towards trying to alter the uh greater narrative it, mm-hmm. where i we absolutely do need to also focus on you know altering our own com- communities and changing our own communities but just because we do that doesn't mean that we can't also mm-hmm. try to impact the greater whole right very true. Yeah, I think little things like this, like the like just doing a podcast, um, writing a book. That's not really a little thing. That's a pretty big thing actually. But the, these little works of art and c- conversations that we have, as above, so below, are planting seeds in that macrocosm psyche, and eventually it won't sound so absurd. You know what I mean? So that's really all we can do right now, um, unless we get on board with um, Joe Rogan starting to talk about the neo hermetic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But, um, but no, I love the mission. I love, I love the idea. And, you know, again, I, I'm, I will put out there that I hope that it's a nonviolent revolution, you know, but that's just who I am. But uh, as well, this is, this is what we can do. And, and taking like one step, each day is better than being like paralyzed with like the overwhelm of like the task at hand. So I think that that is a good thing that we're here to do. And I'm glad you're writing books and, and we're able to discuss this because as we do, yeah, certainly I believe in as above, so below, like I feel like I've seen it and witnessed it in my own life is like, as I'm thinking about things or saying these things, like it's popping up now out there in like the, the, the bigger sphere and, I know we've both been involved in and in sharing these ideas um, for years now through social media, and I like to think we've made an impact. You know what I mean? Um, oh I yeah, think we've, the, uh, we've changed a couple hearts and minds out there. The the winds of change are very slow, but they are blowing. You know, uh, right, I, right. whenever this last midterm happened, uh, I felt a sense of hope that. I had not felt in a long time and the Republicans more or less kind of came out on top in this, uh, last midterm, but they did so mm-hmm. not in a way that they had hoped for. Everybody was talking about, Oh, this red wave is coming and it's just gonna uh, change everything. And then the red wave didn't happen. And now people are starting to realize, Oh, the Republican party is up in flames right now. Uh, these mm-hmm. culture war narratives that they are, using to divide everybody aren't working and the they are understanding now that oh uh not everybody becomes more conservative as they get older uh you make things even worse for everybody and people are going to move that much harder to the opposite uh direction and uh the 
like I said, the winds of change are very slow, but they are blowing. And it's, uh, it is encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, you know, what, what is this going to mean though? Are we going to settle for another compromise where the elite still maintain control of everything and every aspect of our lives while they pollute the earth and, um, you know, leave tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, homeless. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, isn't it crazy? We have enough money to solve the homelessness problem, right? And don't. capitalism is an economic philosophy that relies on the notion of scarcity. Scarcity yeah. is what gives things its value under capitalism. Right. But we no longer live in a uh, in a scarcity-based society, you know, we have the means to take care of everybody. We just don't use it. And, you know, like I said, the, the automation of the workforce, that's a good thing. We should be excited about that. We should be making that happen, but we don't be just because we want the people that control our lives want to keep us all stuck in these just dreary forms of existence in which they own everything and we have nothing and our generation is i mean retirement does not exist for our generation it is not a thing that we have to look forward to we have no future to work towards you know uh that's always one of the things that you know kind of gave uh society it's you know legitimacy is that people had a future within them that they could work towards but we have no future to work towards we are going to be working grinded to death by our jobs until we die and unless we do something about it that's just how it's going to be and right uh, well i think you said it there is over sure yeah i think i think you said it there about um scarcity being almost the the mental barrier that we carry as a society if if that was able to start changing to what's the opposite of scarcity abundance now we have more than we need and it actually makes us feel good spiritually i think there's even science around this to give back to share mm-hmm. to give to others to give to those less fortunate to us to help uh, people in need. Um, I think oh, yeah. that is a solid message worth kind of like pushing out there is how we can slowly start the aiding this homelessness problem and these type of things is like when you have enough, realize you have enough and begin to share with others, begin to give back, begin to share that abundance. And rather than just like hold it, like it's, it's mine, it's mine. Like I want to win this little money money game. I want to have more money than you and blah, 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 blah. It's like there is real science about how good we feel when we give back. And also that there is a, uh, an, an amount of money that we don't, uh, that once we attain, we don't feel any better by having more than. And I think it's around 80 to a hundred thousand dollars a year. Once your needs are met, your six, your happiness doesn't go up right. and up and up. The more you make, on Mm -hmm. top of that hundred thousand let's say um so for you to make five million a year you're not almost any happier and in fact you probably have more problems and more worries and more anxieties 
than someone making a hundred thousand a year. So if we can kind of like bring our perception back down a little bit, then this fucking ego maniac, whatever it's the society is trying to program us to like, just keep making more and more and more. We need 20 million. We need 50 million. I need a hundred million in my bank before I'm complete. Obviously that's not true. Um, we've been complete since the moment where we were born. We are complete because we're here. Um, and if we're able to realize that what I'm saying is like you have enough start to give back and more and more people can do that. We will together make more a more abundant society, which I, I don't know, I think is a great kind of message to, to, to put out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. You just brother. need to be able to have enough to be able to give back. <laughs> it's a tricky one, you know, but I, I think uh, with solid work ethic and, and showing up and uh, getting creative, you know, and this is the era of creativity really driving how we make money um, more so than just the amount of hours we work. Again, you said it earlier, work smarter, not harder. Everyone is capable of doing this. You know, I think we all, it takes some learning, it takes some mentors, it takes some uh, study and, and watching certain pieces of content. I love to point to people, uh, think and grow rich. Mm-hmm. It's very kind of maybe baseline, maybe bland, you know, like to the, the spiritual seekers out there, but Hey, it changed my life forever. Like think and grow rich by Napoleon Hill. If I didn't read that, I don't think I would be where I am right now. And I'm, I'm not a millionaire or anything, but I'm certainly living a life that is comfortable and I'm, and I'm creating and I'm, and I'm sharing stuff that I care about, um, and, and giving back, you know? So, um, I think if we all like take that into our control, you know, I, I really actually like the ideas of, uh, stoicism where it says like, let's identify the things in our control and identify the things out of our control. And if something's out of your control to worry about it, it's kind of unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a tough seed to swallow these ideas, but we can bring the things that are in our control, which is like our body and where we choose to put it and the energy we choose to, uh, to put out. Um, you know, we, we can use that will, the will that we have to create change in our own life, in our friends' lives and our families, families' lives and then the greater communities and hopefully create a splash effect and really inspiring people is probably the best way to do that because when a figure is inspiring uh it it pulls at your heartstrings and you feel you feel this like "Mm, like i love that i love that person i love that idea i want to be like that you know and you create these like these this inspiration in the hearts and minds of people which art and music and all this stuff is really good at doing Mm -hmm. 100 percent well, dude, thank you so much for being here today. It's been an honor reconnecting with you. Um, uh, yeah, very much thank appreciate. You for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate your work, and I look forward to your new book. And hopefully, I catch you at one of these festivals. We were both there this year, but I didn't get to see you. Um, yeah, but but and, we'll, we'll uh, see each other soon, man. And forever for whoever happens to be listening to this, uh, my book Afterlife is out right now. If you are interested in uh, rave culture and transhumanism posthumanism and uh esoteric philosophy uh i think you would enjoy it very much totally is there a website or a social media handle we can point people to it's uh it's on it's available on amazon okay yeah and what's the the title one more time 
Afterlife by Buckley Rue.